The Tom Woods Show, episode 1210. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the Contra Cruise, hosted by Bob Murphy and me, which people absolutely rave about, is back for a third year. Featuring special guests Jeff Deist, Naomi Brockwell, and Brett Vinat, this year promises to be the best one yet. Great folks, great fun, an unforgettable time. Sign up at ContraCruise.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here, just talking about some, let's say a potpourri of topics today that may be, well, very distantly related to each other in the sense that they're all terrible things that need to be smashed. I'm not sure there's any other thread linking them together. I guess I will start with a little bit of good news. I've mentioned this in my email newsletter. Now, come on now. If you're not getting that newsletter by now, I don't know what I have to do. Come through the speakers and smack you around, but go to tomsfreebooks.com and grab one of my free eBooks and get on that list. I sent out an email about Glenn Jacobs, the WWE wrestler Kane, who was indeed elected mayor of Knox County, Tennessee, which includes Knoxville. And it was quite a decisive victory, although in fairness, it's hard for a Democrat to be competitive in Knox County for mayor. But all the same, it's an amazing thing. The fact that uh, Jacobs got through the primary, I think he won by something like 23 votes. It was a it was hotly contested. But then he went on to win the general election quite decisively. And he's a hardcore Misesian Rothbardian, loves the Mises Institute, and is a member of my libertyclassroom.com, where he says that he's learned more than he learned in high school and college. Well, that's my kind of guy, so that's a great thing to hear. So a little bit of good news to start things off, but just a few things that are on my mind I thought I would talk about. I've got a microphone, I've got a computer, I've got a podcast. Here's my opportunity to talk about it. So that means that every person I run into in the course of my day-to-day won't have to hear these things because all you poor folks had to hear them. So the first thing, of course, has to do with what's been happening with Alex Jones. And I guess um, Apple now has jumped in the fray. A number of platforms have punished him or in some way degraded his reach or removed him altogether And Apple, which doesn't actually host podcasts, but does link people to podcasts, is taking away most of his presence from there altogether. And they're saying they're punishing him for hate speech, that they're not, in this particular case, they went out of their way to specify that they're not actually punishing him right now for his conspiratorial material, for the Sandy Hook stuff or any of that. It's rather his violations of their terms of service with regard to hate speech. But they don't specify exactly what the offending posts were or what so-called hate speech was used, and they're just tossing them off. Now, if you're like me, you don't listen to Alex Jones. Now, some of you may, but if you're – in other words, if you're a clone of me, you don't listen to Alex Jones. I don't really listen to very many people at all, to be honest with you, but I don't listen to Alex Jones, and I certainly don't buy into a lot of what he says. But also – You know, I'm not completely tone deaf to what's going on in American society. And when I see a popular figure, which he is, I mean, can't take that away from him. He's built up an amazing audience in a pretty short amount of time. I mean, he started off struggling, but it's amazing how he grew and how quickly he grew. And it was hard to get sponsors and all that for the type of content that he puts out. You have to 
from a sheer marketing standpoint, handed to Alex Jones. He built up an empire for himself. And to see somebody like that taken down in this way with something vague like an accusation of hate speech, that's not something to celebrate even if you are absolutely opposed to Alex Jones. That's not something to celebrate because, and I'll say in parentheses, yes, I know Apple's a private company. They can list or not list whatever podcast they want. Duh, that's obvious, but what a boring thing to point out. Okay, now that you've said that, what, you have nothing else to say? What about the substantive content of what they've done? I get they have the right to do it, but if that's all we're going to say, then every podcast would be 10 seconds long. What about the merits of what they're doing? And we all know that this term hate speech is so compendiously broad that it is just promiscuously applied to all kinds of things people might say. We even are hearing the term hate facts being brought up. Now that, I would be embarrassed to use that term. Hate facts? (laughs) I would be embarrassed to use that term. But it's hard to embarrass a lot of these folks. They're not easily embarrassed. And so given that we've seen that that term is used constantly, I mean, remember, the same people who are going to throw hate speech around are the people who call you a Nazi or a fascist when you couldn't be farther away from those things or who call you a white supremacist. I mean, this is the level of hysteria. There's no law in American society making white people legally superior over other people, which is the only thing white supremacy can mean is that whites have some kind of Well, supremacy, backed by law. Well, which laws are the people accused of white supremacy? Which, by the way, at this point, it's anybody to the right of Bob Dole is more or less holding up white supremacy. Which laws do they favor that would make white people legally superior over Asians, Hispanics, blacks, other minorities? Of course, none. But this is the, no matter, let's just put it this way the terms that are thrown around are hysterical constantly. Now, I'll grant you that on the right wing, we hear the word communist thrown around quite a bit in cases where obviously they're just being playful or it doesn't doesn't really apply. I don't generally do that. I, I try to reserve the term commie for actual commies. But the thing is, we all know in our society, communists, communists just does not have the same sting that Nazi or fascist does. It just doesn't. Communist does not have the same sting. Even though if you were to have lived in communist Cambodia, you would be begging to live in fascist Italy. There's no question about that. That's just a simple matter of history. Anybody can go look that up. If you were to compare the number of deaths, politically motivated deaths in fascist Italy, it is a fraction of a percent of the numbers in, say, communist Cambodia or in a great many of these uh, so-called workers' paradises. But that term just doesn't go anywhere. It's like like when right-wingers try to call the left bigots because they don't like Christianity or something. That just doesn't stick. It never works for them to try that or to say to them, you guys are the real racists. No, see, that doesn't work. You just, maybe it should, but in our society, those terms work only in one direction. So, yes, the right wing uses the word commie, but not as much as the left uses all these hysterical words. Sometimes the right wing is actually referring to actual communists, so there is that. Um, But it's totally ineffective and completely different and on on a much, much smaller scale. So when hate speech is thrown around, it can be applied to all kinds of people you may like. So today it's Alex Jones but tomorrow it'll be somebody else who's just one tier lower. 
even though I don't think what's so weird about all this is that when I think about Alex Jones and the sorts of things I could see him getting in trouble for, I really wouldn't have thought hate speech was the category. I would have thought it was so-called fake news or some of his reporting that seems to fill in blanks with more speculation than substance. I would have thought that would be what he would get in trouble for. But the idea that he's uttering hate speech, that's just, again, I don't listen to him, so that could be, but I don't think really anybody thinks of him in that way. That's what makes this so strange. So yes, I get that Apple can do what it wants, but I guess I'm just thinking to myself, there must be somebody else out there who agrees with me that it would be nice to have a platform that doesn't feel like it needs to be your mother, that doesn't feel like it needs to protect you from what somebody might say on a podcast, that says, you know what, there are a lot of podcasts in the world, and some of them are great, and some of them are terrible, and some of them are outright crazy, but here they are, and you go listen. I mean, these are the same people, same people who say that Alex Jones's podcast is too dangerous for people to listen to. These are the same people who say that these very people should have the right to vote. They're so easily swayed that one podcast can make them go crazy, but they all should have the right to vote. Well, it seems to me it's either one or the other. Either you start taking the right to vote away from those people, which they would never do, or you just grow up and say, okay, we, we got, this is the world we live in, and we got to just uh, deal with the cards we've been dealt. So anyway, that's the Alex Jones thing. I think we should be not happy. That's my that's my point. So that's the that's the lefty thing. Now let's just going on from this. There's the woman, and now I, I know I should just Google it. And I, for the life of me, I cannot remember her name. But you probably heard about the controversy regarding a woman. She's of Korean descent, who was recently hired for the editorial board of the New York Times, and it turns out she has a long history of anti-white male tweets. And they then tried to claim that, well, she was just echoing the kind of rhetoric that her own critics used. But you look at these tweets, that is obviously not what's happening. Uh, The excuses they made up for these are just laughable. They would never allow anybody else to make those types of excuses. Nobody would believe them. And then, of course, we get treated to the whole, you can't be racist against white people. And now why is that? If you think of racism as as being an animosity directed toward a particular group, then of course you can because whites are a particular group. But if you tendentiously define racism in such a way as to make it logically impossible to, to apply it to white people, then yeah, I guess technically you'd be right. But then we would just ask, why are you coming up with such a, such a weird, bizarre, counterintuitive definition? So – Anyway, she's got all these tw- – I mean, you've got to read them. They're just, they're just crazy. But the point of, of that is I want to just point out Vox, you know, that annoying website that makes you crazy, is saying that, yeah, the alt-right sure doesn't like her. Like you'd have to be on the alt-right to think there's something weird and strange about the fact that this woman can say vile things about a particular group, absolutely vile about taking delight in other people's misery, only the alt-right finds that weird? Now, of course, Vox has to know that's not true. Or they could be so deluded that they think, you know, 50% of the population is alt-right or something. Why would you say something like that? So it, it goes to show two things about the left. The total hysteria, the terms they use are completely hysterical. And secondly, they can't make distinctions. They cannot 
Now, I've been guilty of this, and, and I did a mea culpa for it when Scott Horton corrected me. I've lumped the whole left in together on a number of occasions where it was not helpful to do so. Sometimes they all do agree on something, and then it is helpful to do so. But I did so about talking about the anti-war movement. And it's true, there are good folks, at least on the war issue, on the left out there who are still fighting, like my own friend Murray Polner I wrote the book with, uh, We Who Dared to Say No to War. So I appreciate that. But you never see this on the left. They they really don't think there's any difference between, I mean, the idea that you'd, you'd have a difference between the Chicago and Austrian schools of economics, forget that. They're never getting that. But I'm talking about things that aren't even as subtle as that. The idea that the alt-right are the people who think these tweets are objectionable. What's the percentage of people in America who would identify with the alt-right? Very, very tiny. But I would venture to suggest that a majority of Americans looking at those tweets would say there's a problem with those. And I would say a majority of Americans would say it's crazy to say you can't be racist against white people. Well, okay, if if you're going to define racist so that it excludes white people, <laughs> then then fine. But that's a dumb definition that is unhelpful. Now, having said that, then the other problem, other problem I see certainly with the, the let's say, left liberals – so the, let's say the Clinton supporters, not the hard left, but the Clinton supporters, the more establishment version of the left, let's say. You look at some of the things, and you know what? This actually extends to some extent. It does extend and bleed out into the harder left, is that they'll, they'll look at some big, important issue, and instead of really wanting to sink their teeth into that big, important issue, they get sidetracked into some social justice warrior Sideshow. For example, a few months ago, the president and CEO of the New York Fed was about to be replaced, and it looked as if John Williams was going to get the job, which indeed he did. And there is a group out there apparently called Fed Up, kind of a clever name. And you think, oh, these people must be sick and tired of the Federal Reserve uh, ginning up business cycles and then blaming them on the free market. Uh, that's not it. It's, this group is concerned there isn't enough racial diversity at the Fed. Now, talk about a non-issue, racial diversity at the sinister, horrible, economically unnecessary, and positively destructive Federal Reserve System. What you're concerned about is there are too many white people there? So if only we had a black woman's perspective on monetary policy, what does this mean? So that's their concern, not enough racial diversity. So it wasn't that John Williams is being appointed and let's scour his views to see if if he favors artificially low interest rates uh, and if, if he understands the consequences this has for the economy. None of that, <laughs> nothing. In, instead, it's um, we'd rather have somebody whose skin color is different from his. That's screwy. That's totally screwy. Or... This was this came to me. I'll link to it on the show notes page. There's an article, and again, forgive my middle-aged memory. I can't remember the guy's name, but Scott Horton, who's a frequent guest on this show, foreign policy expert, sent it to Bob Murphy, and then I saw it on Bob's blog. But it was written last month, July 2018, by somebody who is on the left. He's not a Clinton type. He's on the hard left, and he wrote a piece critical of Paul Krugman, who had written an article in which he more or less celebrated what he openly called the American empire, that it's a good and decent thing and that this weirdo Trump is doing damage to it. And this leftist was saying, this is the wrong 
way to look at things. You're just whitewashing the history of the empire so that you can say that Trump is some weird outlier. Trump is not an outlier when it comes to the empire. Uh, in some ways, if he's trying to be less bellicose, that makes him an outlier. But he's done more than his share of bombing. And, and, and he's going through and saying, for Krugman to paint this little picture of we had this sweet little empire and then Trump came along, you have to bury a whole lot of, of stuff to make that case. And so, so it's a really, really good piece. And it shows that there are people on the left who can think clearly on this stuff and not be constantly focused on the uniqueness of Trump when that's not helpful in foreign policy. It's what we need to show to the contrary is that actually a lot of the things you might object to in Trump's foreign policy are just longstanding bipartisan consensus policies. Well, I bring that up by contrast to what we heard about however many months ago when there was a debate, well, years ago over the so-called gays in the military controversy, but then it was transgender people in the military. And the whole thing was we need equality in the military. And I thought, well, look at what the military does. I mean, look at it. There's, you go back years and years and years and years. What have they done where you think that really protected us? That made things safer. That didn't just destabilize the world. That made Americans more safe. If you go back, you just don't find examples of that. What you instead find is a whole lot of horror being rained down on a whole lot of defenseless people. And if your view is that the problem here is that transgender folks can't also join in on the bombing, then there's something wrong with you, in my opinion. I think there's something – you're so caught up in social justice warrior stuff that you've, as Caitlin Johnstone would have said in a, in a different context, you've become somewhat less human. Because that's not the way you think. Like I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go back to, yes, I know I'm bringing up Nazi Germany, but why not? I wouldn't go back there and say, you know, the problem was we had too many white people as concentration camp guards. We need to open up the concentration camp guard industry to a wider array of applicants. That would not be a normal thing to say. And then they'll come back with, oh, look, I'm not supporting what the military does. But okay, well, then apply that to concentration camp. Look, I'm not supporting what the concentration camp guards are doing. I'm just saying everybody should have an equal shot at it. You see, that's not normal. A normal person doesn't think like that. All right, even here, maybe I should modify. Let's say normal people who have thought through the issues clearly, who are fully aware of the situation and aware of what's been going on overseas – I don't think they would say the real problem here is lack of diversity. I just don't understand why you would think that. But I do understand. Now, here's a ham-handed segue. No, not into the Contra Cruz, but to say a word on behalf of my friends over at Skillshare, I am getting fantastic reviews from you folks who have checked out Skillshare. It's an online learning platform. It now has over 20,000 classes in all kinds of fields, in business, marketing, entrepreneurship, technology, and in a lot of specific areas, learn this particular piece of software, learn this particular sub-skill within your field. It helps you to stand out in your own profession. It helps you to build up a side hustle or even your own business on the basis of skills you learn there. And the model is just like Netflix. You subscribe monthly. The idea is that you get access to everything they have. It's not like you got to pay for, you wouldn't pay for each movie separately on Netflix. You get the whole thing. Well, you get the whole thing with Skillshare. And it's absolutely extraordinary. And remember, I'm always on every, in people's cases that you should have something lined up in case disaster strikes. I'm always on your case. And here's a really painless way to do that. And plus, you'll just have fun 
going through and scrolling through and, and looking through all the different courses they have available, and it's going to make you say, yep, you know what, I think it's I think it's worth giving a shot. To. And in fact, you should give it a shot, particularly because of the great deal they've got for Tom Wood Show listeners. You get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. So they're offering Tom Wood Show listeners two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes for just 99 cents. That's insane. You'd be crazy not to do this. So to sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Woods. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash Woods to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Woods. All right, I want to show that I'm being reasonable today, and I'm, I'm, I also want to criticize folks who are on my right. I don't want to say they're on my – I don't know. Who knows how to figure out who's where on this crazy spectrum? But I do want to say – let's see. Do I want to talk about – yes, yeah, yeah, I do want to talk about this. Um, and the reason I'm doing this is just to show as a libertarian you can have fun being attacked – by and criticizing all different kinds of groups of people. But what's also fun, by the way, is that from time to time, you can join forces with all different kinds of people. It's like Michael Bolden at the 10th Amendment Center. He works with a lot of people he wouldn't agree with on a lot of things, but on that one area of overlap, he's very good at collaboration and making things work. And with libertarians, we're the same way. Almost everybody wants some share of freedom on something, and we can help them in that one area. And then on the other areas, we got to try and stop them. So you find yourself, as the old saw goes, that you find yourself being accused of being a right-winger and a left-winger all in the same day. Well, that's the life of a libertarian. So I wrote a book back in 2005 called The Church and the Market. And that book ended up winning a big, big, big book prize. That was uh, that was tremendous <laughs> that it won that prize. And I ended up writing a 10th anniversary edition, obviously, which came out a few years ago, with, an, with a new introduction and a whole extra chapter and a much nicer cover, by the way. Um, so The Church and the Market, I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1210. It's one of the most valuable contributions I think I've made because sometimes I, I'm just a popularizer of um, a lot of knowledge that has been dug up by other people and I – since I'm fairly widely read, I bring it all together and convey it to people. But the church in the market is a case of one of the cases where I'm making what I think is an original contribution. I don't think anybody was arguing my thesis before I, I did. And now all of a sudden I see a lot of people arguing it and I think they got it from me. But that's fine. That's why I wrote the book. I want people to argue it. But the long and the short of it is that book – ostensibly has a Catholic audience in mind, but by no means do you have to be a Catholic to read that book. I genuinely think that's the book to read after you've read, let's say, Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson and before you want to move on to the really advanced Austrian texts. I think you should read The Church and the Market. It'll help to introduce you and get you ready for a lot of advanced ideas. It's it's an intermediate text in that way. But the people I had in mind in that book as the intended audience were not Catholic leftists, because I, I just don't find that to be a helpful conversation. I've tried, and it just doesn't work. But rather, I had in mind traditionalists in the Catholic Church, some of whom, not all, thank goodness, but certainly a sliver of whom are outspoken in their opposition to the market economy. Now, they don't say that they're socialists. They agree that that's bad, but they want some third way. It's the elusive third way between these two systems. And it's the usual arguments, both capitalism and socialism are materialistic and they have a, an anthropology that's all wrong. It's the usual sort of stuff. And I think this is just mistaken. 
And I bet some people listening have probably never heard of right-wingers who are opposed to the market economy. But sometimes, again, not all, but you do hear some voices on the alt-right say, yeah, we should have um, mandated maternal leave and we should have national health care in a society that's more uh, racially homogeneous. So you do hear that. So that's not a made-up phenomenon. It really does exist. And for traditional Catholics, their their arguments would – I mean they, they seem to be thinking that the free market more or less came out of the Enlightenment. And since they don't care for the Enlightenment, they want to uh, – they think this is another left-wing aspect of the modern world. Well – you know that's neither here nor there for my purposes because what I just want to do is I I just want to critique one sentence that I read in a, in an article. I keep up with these folks because I'm I'm quite sympathetic to them on liturgical issues, but geez, when they get to economics, it's just pomposity. So I read this: an unrestrained capitalist system is predicated upon a fundamentally materialistic metaphysics. And a materialist metaphysics produces a hedonist ethics. (sighs) All right. Well, for the hundredth time, no, that is not true. Uh, First of all, what is a so-called unrestrained capitalist system? Well, it just means exchanges must be voluntarily agreed to by both parties. That's all it means. It never has meant anything more than that. It does not mean to be a capitalist, you must accumulate for its own sake. It doesn't mean you must devote your life to chasing after the latest gadgets. And it certainly doesn't mean that consumerism is a virtue, whatever consumerism is even supposed to mean. But it doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say how you ought to live your life. You're asking too much of an economic system if you're expecting it to tell you how to live your life. Look to philosophers and theologians for that. Look to economics to keep you from dying. If it can do that, then it's pretty much done its job. Don't look to it for the meaning of life and all all the rest of this. All capitalism means, uh, all it's about, is you can't use other people as means to your ends. And it's it's interesting, incidentally, that um, Pope John Paul II used to say that from time to time, that you should never use somebody as just a means to your end. Well, exactly right. So what does that mean? It means that when two people interact, you better make sure both of them that the both of you want the interaction. Otherwise, one of you is using the other one as a means to an end. Now, moreover, this whole thing about capitalism makes you a materialistic boob. Well, look, the fact is capitalism has created wealth on a staggering scale for everyone. The standard of living of the poorest in market societies has exploded over the past couple of hundred years. And it's precisely this that liberates people to pursue goals that are not materialistic in nature. So, for example, when you're just one bad harvest away from starvation, you're not really in the mood to join a book club or take up an interest in box cantatas or study the Impressionists. But when your basic needs are taken care of, as they overwhelmingly are under capitalism, again, the statistics are everywhere, you are liberated to pursue the higher things. Now, if you really want to see what people who are truly obsessed with material things are like, then seek out the histories of the socialist states of yore. Those deprived people who had to struggle just to survive had no choice but to be focused on what paltry goods they could acquire. Not to mention, these very critics themselves complain that the poor don't have enough under capitalism. Well, enough what? Enough what? Enough, I don't know, Material goods? 
So aren't you also a materialist? If your whole complaint about capitalism is that it doesn't provide enough material goods for people? So the point is people who favor government intervention into the labor market think the material well-being of workers would thereby be improved. So if I'm materialistic for supporting capitalism, then so are they. And now where, where's all this silly name-calling gotten us? And, and even if, just for the sake of argument, even if we accepted our critics' insistence that the rights of property are not absolute and must sometimes be curtailed, it still doesn't follow that it's the state rather than the individual conscience that must do the curtailing. And then finally, state power to aggress against property owners inevitably encourages man's most predatory instincts. And that gives him an incentive to devote less time to satisfying the needs of his fellow men and more time to using the state's machinery of coercion to loot them for his own selfish benefit. And so to put this in language more familiar to our critics, the release of such instincts undermines the common good. So that's how it's possible to be for the free market and believe in, uh, you know, you don't have to be a, a robot just consuming goods all day as your life's goal, um, and also believe in the idea of the common good. It is enhanced when we're not all trying to climb over each other to get hold of the state apparatus. You know, that sounds like a good start if what you care about is the common good. All right, well, before I wrap up for today, here's a, a website that actually is somewhat relevant probably to my point just now. It is a Christian libertarian site, nokingbutchrist.org, and the creator, Adam Graham, says that as a Christian and a libertarian, he talks about issues of interest to people who have a similar overlap. So he talks about political philosophy and apologetics and foreign policy, all kinds of questions like that. He has a post called Things You Must Know About Iran. He's got a series on dispensationalism. Worth checking out at nokingbutchrist.org. Remember, I'll give you publicity like this if you get your hosting through my link and you get other really invaluable goodies as well. Get the details on that at tomwoods.com slash publicity. I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time.